Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm talking to Sydney Halpern, Professor Emerita at the University of Illinois at Chicago and lecturer in the Program in Medical Humanities and and Bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Professor Halpern is the author of Dangerous Medicine, The Story Behind Human Experiments with Hepatitis, which was published in 2021 by Yale University Press. Sydney, welcome to the show. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, I, I got my PhD at Berkeley in sociology, which is kind of unusual for somebody who works on medical history. My concentration was historical analysis, and I actually worked with both a historical sociologist and an American historian. Um, so... All of my work has been on the history of medical institutions, professions, and medical science, mostly in the U.S., mostly during the 20th century. So um, I guess what happened to me was I almost went to medical school, but I was done. I was ABD in sociology, and I decided, well, you know, I'll combine my interests by studying medicine with a, you know, social historical perspective. And how did you come to write Dangerous Medicine? So I was doing research on my second book, uh, Lesser Harms, uh, which looks at vaccine testing um, in the kind of a little bit in a period a little bit before Dangerous Medicine. So it was prior to 1960, the 60s, when the Food and Drug Administration um, and actually the NIH, which was regulating biologicals, started overseeing uh, clinical testing of, of new uh, clinical interventions. So I was, I was at the um, American Philosophical Society looking at the papers of Joseph Stokes, who was a, um, a major vaccine researcher. And I came across documents in a folder that were very different from the 
the documents I was seeing on vaccine testing. And uh, they were both, they're basically a stack of consent statements uh, that were labeled waiver and release because all of the consent statements used during this period waived the researchers and their sponsors for any liability, legal liability for harm. And these were experiments where people were agreeing to be infected and reinfected with hepatitis. And um, I have to say, although I'm familiar and was familiar with um, problematic experiments from medicine's past, when I ran into this, it was that the hairs on my, the back of my neck stood up because I was looking at the original consent documents signed in, um, in, in, um, in ink uh, and of the people who had actually participated with their signatures, their very distinctive signatures. Um, so I tried putting this stuff aside, but the pull of the material was really strong. And, you know, I soon discovered it was a major uh, government-sponsored program of hepatitis infection experiments that went on for 30 years between 1942 and 1972, and that it involved an unusually wide, um, expansive set of different groups of human subjects. So it was distinctive and exemplary, um, distinctive in its length, although there were other programs that went on this long, particularly the the, um, malaria infection experiments. It was really distinctive in how many different kinds of human subjects it used, while at the same time being exemplary of patterns of human experimentation more broadly in um, mid-century America. Well, before we get into the book, um, I, I have to ask a sort of basic background question, and that is, what is hepatitis? Right. So hepatitis is a condition that um, its signature is inflammation of the liver. And um, most cases of hepatitis are caused by a variety of strains of viruses. And although you can get you can get hepatitis in a way that doesn't involve, um, you can get it from the toxin or from a functional problem. So the symptoms involve abdominal discomfort, nausea, vomiting, fever, body aches, exhaustion. It's a, it's a nasty illness and it can last for weeks and sometimes come back and sometimes not entirely go away. Um, one of the signs of it is jaundice, which is the yellowing of the eyes and, and skin, although um, a patient can have um, hepatitis without jaundice. So the three major strains, hepatitis A, B, and C, although there are others as well, researchers who were working on this during um, the middle part of the century knew they were transmitting the A and B viruses they were unaware of the existence of C until after the experimental program was over, although they unwittingly actually transmitted C to some human subjects. Let's talk a little bit about how these hepatitis experiments got started. Why was hepatitis a problem for the military during World War II and the Cold War? So, um, As the World War II was approaching, the Army Medical Department geared up to be organized to prevent diseases among soldiers because in previous wars, more soldiers had been struck down by diseases 
and infections than um, from actual battle injuries. Immediately after Pearl Harbor, there was a massive outbreak of hepatitis B among um, the armed service personnel in the U.S. Um, And it was actually caused by a a contaminated yellow fever vaccine. Um, But when that particular epidemic was under control, there were still outbreaks, usually of hepatitis A among soldiers, and this was particularly a problem in the Mediterranean region where soldiers were fighting in, in North Africa and in southern Italy and Sicily. And then after the war, researchers realized that hepatitis B had contaminated the blood supply. So all of this was a trigger and um, impelled the Army Medical Department to see hepatitis as a major threat to national security. And that's how it was framed. The outbreak in 1942 is really unusual. Again, that was the one that started the whole hepatitis research program. As I mentioned, the cause was a yellow fever vaccine that the War Department adopted for all military personnel in late 1941 because they feared that yellow fever uh, might be weaponized by the Japanese. Um, and inadvertently, the formulation they used for that yellow fever vaccine, well, it involved including serum in the vaccine, which some scientists thought was necessary to stabilize the virus that was in the vaccine. And the first hepatitis experiments actually used contaminated lots of the vaccine, which researchers knew had a very likelihood of causing hepatitis. And they used that to infect human subjects in an effort to demonstrate that hepatitis was a transmittable pathogen. So that was the first experiment done at a place called Lynchburg State Colony, an institution for individuals with developmental disabilities. So the this is this is the beginning of the hepatitis experiments, and the book is divided into three parts. The first part is 1942 to 1946. The second part is 1946 to 1954. And the third part is 1956 to 1972 and beyond. Can you tell us about each of these three periods in hepatitis research? Sure. So... During World War II, again, this was when the program began, and um, all of the research done during this 30-year period was funded, or virtually all of it, was funded through, at first, the Department of War, and then after after World War II, the Department of Defense, the new name for the agency. And it wasn't only, so um, the Department of War, through its um, Office of the Army Surgeon General, set up an agency called the um, Army Epidemiology Board. Um, Initially, it was called the Board for Control of Influenza and Other Infectious Diseases in the Army. And that got its name from, of course, the very famous pandemic of influenza, in um, 1918-1919, which infected 20 to 40% of all military personnel in the, in the U.S. 
Um, so the Army Epidemiology Board was a, it was set up as an, in an oversight board and commissions. And the members of these boards and commissions were prestigious uh, researchers from American universities and prestigious laboratories. For example, the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research had representatives on the board, as did uh, major infectious disease researchers. Um, So the Army Epidemiology Board, through its researchers and the Public Health Service, through the National Institutes of Health, were actively involved in either conducting or overseeing uh, hepatitis infection experiments. So there were actually 10 different research groups that, that were active during the 30-year period, and they had multiple team members on the group. So there were upwards of 60 scientists altogether during the 30-year period. Um, and that basic structure was maintained during all of the historical periods. Um, so in the immediate post-war period, the second period you're talking about, the Army Epidemiology Board was reconstituted as the Armed Forces Epidemiology Board within the newly created Department of Defense. And it continued this program of hepatitis infection experiments, again, then focused on, on the issue of, um, well, I should go back for a minute and, and, and I'll talk a little bit about what the scientists were trying to do in these different periods. So in the, in the first period, in the World War II period, they were really trying to understand basic features of hepatitis. As I suggested before, they weren't even sure that hepatitis was a transmittable virus. So they discovered really early on that, that, that it was. But in the World War II period, they were trying to understand the course of the disease, how long was the incubation period, the, the length of time between exposure and infection. And they were also working on differentiating two of the major strains, hepatitis A and B. And those were some of the most challenging experiments for um, for the subjects because it involved getting infected or being infected more than once, sometimes as many as four or five times. Um, then in the immediate post-war period, again, we have an, a new set of organizational structures. But during this whole period, there was this uh, basic coalition of um, physicians in the Army Medical Corps and physicians in prestigious universities and laboratories. And I kind of term this a new military biomedical elite. And this was sustained throughout the 30-year period. Just to mention, in in the immediate post-war period, researchers tried to start working on prevention of hepatitis. So they had discovered during World War II that gamma globulin, if given during an outbreak, curbed uh, the number of new cases. So they tried to extend the duration of what was called passive immunity from uh, from basically a blood product that had antibodies of those who had donated blood. Um, and then in the final period, they were also actively moving toward trying to develop vaccines. In this period, we not only have the Armed Forces Epidemiology Board, but also a new unit within uh, the military um, medical um, establishment called the Research and Development Command. So um, the Army created a second kind of umbrella group because they weren't 
umbrella organization because they weren't happy with the progress being made by the um, Armed Forces Epidemiology Board. So just one other comment. Throughout this, the National Academy of Sciences and the National Research Council had subcommittees and committees that were weighing in and providing scientific oversight of the program. So it was a major set of public health service, army, um, and scientific organizations, which together were collaborating and putting, uh, having scientific input into both the selection of research questions and also to the selection of human subjects. So these weren't rogue experiments and they weren't secret. Well, they were definitely not rogue experiments. So this was not a lone investigator going off and doing something un- unbeknownst to others. These, this was really the elite of uh, biomedical researchers in the arena of infectious disease and virology. So, And it was all funded by and understood by the federal government. On the issue of secret, that's kind of interesting. At the beginning of the, of the program, uh, the Army Medical Department tried to keep the experiments undercover, um, but they they very quickly found out that they weren't able to do that very effectively. Um, they were the experiments were too big, um, and and the press that for the most part uh, conformed to Army request for secrecy didn't always do so. And also some of the institutional directors where the subjects were housed were also basically making statements. Um, but they did, researchers and their sponsors did, were fairly effective for quite a while in keeping some of the experiments secret, particularly those in mental patients and uh, in institutions for persons with developmental disabilities. So for quite a while, they were effective in keeping those um, not visible to the public. That was until the 60s when they weren't able to do so. Um, let's talk a little bit about, that's a, a great segue, um, who were the subjects of human experiments with hepatitis? Right. Well, there I estimate there were 3,700 of them, mostly men but some women, mostly adults, but more than 800 children. And there were four different groups conscientious objectors to the military draft during World War II, prison inmates. So there were 15 state or federal uh, correctional facilities um, in which hepatitis experiments took place. Mental patients. There was one institution in New Jersey, one mental hospital, where 300 mental patients were enrolled in hepatitis infection experiments and also residents and institutions for the developmentally disabled. And there were three or four of these institutions, which were sites for deliberate hepatitis infection studies. The the most famous of these is Willowbrook State Hospital, where uh, researchers from New York University conducted experiments with um, disabled children for 17 years between 1954 and 1972. One of the things that I I found really compelling about the book was the way that you showed that in every period, while these hepatitis experiments sort of um, continued, um, they they did so despite criticism. So in every period, there were critics. Um, 
who who were the critics of the of these experiments and what were their criticisms? Yeah, it was really interesting um, to to track this, and it was it was interesting also because for a long time the criticism was not publicly visible. Um, I would find it in the archives, you know, um, and or in some cases in in uh, research publications. So in the World War II period. Um, just as the first experiments were about to take place, one of the researchers in the biomedical lead, a man whose name is Carl Meyer, said, you know, this would be a really good idea, but, you know, maybe not. These are too risky, given the mortality rate we're finding in uh, military personnel on some of the bases. So one of the places there was an outbreak after the um, use of the yellow fever vaccine was um, military outposts in California, and they were they were getting quite a few deaths from from hepatitis B, fulminant hepatitis B. Um, and then the conscientious objectors, among the conscientious objectors, there were, there were also uh, pockets of, of resistance and questions. So there were, there were a couple of conscientious objectors when flyers were going out to recruit um, COs to participate in the experiments that rode into the um, Civilian Public Service, which was the organization that oversaw camps where conscientious objectors were serving alternative service to the military draft, saying, you know, these are too risky. Have, have, have the people who you're recruiting been told how risky these could be, that the people could have long-term liver problems? Um, and another um, episode I found, and this also involved conscientious objectors, and I thought was one of the most fascinating. So there was a camp in Philadelphia, actually at the University of Pennsylvania, which um, was set up to uh, to basically provide uh, human subjects to a Philadelphia project at the University of Pennsylvania. And some of the conscientious objectors who were there so the men, when they weren't actually ill, were actually doing work. So they were human subjects, but they also had work assignments. So some of the CEOs in Philadelphia were assigned to go to the mental hospital in New Jersey to be aides, to be hospital aides to the mental patients who there were being recruited or being enrolled in these experiments. And there, so they called them, they were the work crew for the New Jersey work crew, and they organized and said, this isn't ethical. And we insist on talking to the researchers and we object to, you know, we're volunteering. We understand what's going on, but the mental patients, that's not consent. Um, and they, they went and they, they actually had a meeting with the director of the mental hospital who was furious at them. And um, so there was a, there was a, if you call it amusing, that's not very amusing, but, sort of, you know, another one of those instances with a hair on the back of my neck is standing up. He's writing in his monthly report, um, which is a, a, a statutory requirement that these, these conscientious objectors were making accusations and they were entirely out of place making these. They had no business doing this. And he was going to insist that the researchers in Philadelphia, uh, get rid of these men and replace them with paid employees. Um, so that was just during World War II. And then in the post-war period, 
um, one of the researchers began doing hepatitis infection experiments with children in, um, in selecting children in institutions for children. And um, there was a researcher, uh, Thomas Rivers, from the uh, Rockefeller Institute uh, for Research, um, who objected and made his objections known at these advisory committees, um, Washington-based advisory committees, the Armed, Armed Forces Epidemiology Board. Now, Rivers himself wasn't exactly an innocent, so he, he did some things that weren't, you know, that one could say were perhaps not ethical, which he he announced, you know. But um, any rate, he objected to the experiments on children. And then there was this really interesting Lancet article in the early 50s, where Lancet was commenting on some experiments by a researcher named Hillary Kaprowski, who was developing live polio vaccines and had actually used them with children, um, young, very young children in institutions for the, mentally, for the developmentally disabled. And the Lancet editorial noted that he had called his his subjects volunteers and they made a, a, a facetious comment about, well, maybe next time we're going to hear about volunteer mice in medical experiments. So I could go on, but after the war, in response to the revelations of Nazi medical experiments, European medical societies also mobilized against experiments with individuals that they depicted as captive or otherwise unable to give voluntary consent. So they were interpreting the Nuremberg Code somewhat differently than American physicians. And then in the 60s, you might say um, all hell broke loose when uh, objections to experiments of this kind uh, became really a policy issue um, and in which dissent within biomedicine itself became much more uh, marked and which the research community, the elite, the medical elite, couldn't keep the objections from being seen from the outside. And that was the point at which um, there was real pressure for there to be change in the rules for human experimentation. Tell us, tell us more about the role that the media played in this story. So the media was very, very important in promoting a moral framework. This is during the 25 years before the 60s. Um, Researchers developed a moral framework which legitimized and normalized experiments of this type, which were very risky for human subjects. Um, They justified them by saying we don't have an animal model and that, you know, the problem of of hepatitis is such a problem for the military and it is a real problem for national security. But they also created a narrative about the subjects being volunteers and the subjects making sacrifices for the common good that were voluntary. And um, if you will, they sold this narrative to the mainstream press, which was sympathetic So you actually had articles in major American newspapers, particularly um, interviewing subjects, and at first, particularly the conscientious objectors, who I would say, in fact, were volunteers, who in fact did know, had had been told that these were risky experiments. And these were men who, a subset of the men in civilian public service, who decided that 
most of the alternative service available them was too tame for them. And they wanted to do something which demonstrated their willingness to take risks. Um, some of them actually said, we, I, I want to be exposed to the level of risk that soldiers are in, in the armed forces. Some of them would say, I, I want to prove I'm, I'm not a coward and not a yellow belly, because that's what I'm being called by people who don't approve of conscientious objectors. So all of this coverage really um, created public acceptance for the hepatitis program. I just want to say one other thing about the press, because there's, there's a different press that was also important here, and that was the prison press. So of all the human subjects, the 3,700, uh, about 45% of them were prison inmates. And the prison press actually played an important role in recruitment and in also in creating a narrative in which prisoners were praised and lauded for their participation in these experiments. Um, a little bit more about the press, because... When it, during the 60s, during that period where, um, well, that was a period where the moral framework eroded and rights activism was creating pressure from outside biomedicine, uh, was identifying research abuses as a public problem. Um, and there were also new news outlets for doctors. But there were objections now from within biomedicine to the standard rules for conducting human experiments. Uh, these were from largely young, politically uh, progressive physicians, including uh, physicians and organizations like the Med Medical Committee for Human Rights. And they started being very, very vocal. And so the press started covering not just the narrative of the biomedical elite, but also the controversy within biomedicine itself. And, um, and the the new um, objections that were spilling into the public domain. So the press's um, dissemination of the old narrative ceased and the press started asking, well, maybe we need more rules for human experiments and look at these protests against, against and look at these accusations of research abuse coming not only from activists, but also from doctors. And that was what undermined um, Basically, the biomedical elite lost control of the public narrative, um, and the press, the mainstream press, was part of this loss of control. You titled the conclusion of the book "An Ending Without Closure," um, and in the conclusion, write that until now, two. This is a quote: two well-traversed storylines have dominated depictions of the hepatitis infection studies. One tells of heroic efforts to vanquish a serious disease, and the other condemns violations of consent and misuse of vulnerable subjects. Can you tell us how dangerous medicine relates to each of those two storylines? Yeah. Um, well, the problem with that framing, uh, there are lots of problems with it, but it doesn't address the why and the how. So if we, if we simply... Um, praise biomedicine or vilify it for research abuses, we really don't understand what's going on and why and how problematic experiments get conducted. And that framing also obscures, I think, some really important questions about how to handle risk. So like, even if subjects consent and consent voluntarily and with 
information. Um, is it really acceptable to proceed with extremely um, dangerous experiments? I mean, what level of risk is is acceptable? And who should we be asking to make sacrifices in the expectation of greater good? And then I also raised questions about, well, are scientists' assessments of the risk always reliable when their research is at the limits of medical knowledge? So one of the things that scientists didn't understand about hepatitis was that people who become carriers, that is people who don't, whose bodies don't expel the virus fully, um, are at long-term risk for cirrhosis and liver cancer. And that two decades later, um, or three decades later, a quarter of all people who have been hepatitis carriers will die prematurely of hepatite of uh, liver cancer or cirrhosis. And then I, I also asked the question because one of the things that I found routinely in these experiments is that the federal government would not compensate for research injury, never followed up on any long-term harms. They did provide medical care. Uh, the, they did make provisions for medical care while human subjects had acute illness. But once the experiments were over, um, you know, three, four, maybe five months after initial infection, uh, they were done with human subjects, and they basically told the researchers to wash their hands of people. Um, so, um, you know, that that leads into, you know, is this the right way to deal with human subjects? Um, you know, do you think they sh- do you think they should be compensated? What are some of the what are the policy implications of the of your book? Right. So one of the policy implications I feel is that we need to look at our lack in the United States of a system for compensating people who have been experienced either short or long term harms um, from medical experiments. Other countries do have such systems. Um, in the U.S., we basically are relying on the legal system. So if you're harmed, then you have the option of in, in, initiating a lawsuit. Um, people, The kinds of people who are recruited as human subjects typically do not have the resources to pursue this, this course. Alone, human subjects certainly doesn't. Sometimes when human subjects... Um, are able to get support from a social movement or, um, you know, when, when they can come together as a group, they can, um, attempt to have a class action suit. And some of these have been successful to a limited degree, but for the most part, there was not compensation and the government's refusal, um, through these waiver and release forms was consistent. By the way, the waiver and release statements were made, um, were rejected and were no longer possible to use after 1974. So part of the way the experiments ended was the creation of a regulatory system, which the hepatitis uh, story intersects with. But the other policy implication has to do with who is serving as human subjects. So um, it's now the case that regulations created in the 70s and 80s and consolidated in the 90s, um, basically created constraints on the use of identified vulnerable groups, including prisoners and children. 
So it's much more difficult now for researchers to use members of these groups in experiments that aren't directed toward improving the health and well-being of the, of the, of the subjects or of the groups of subjects that these individuals are classified within. But then the question is, well, now who is serving as human subjects now for experiments in which um, participants don't have a hope of benefiting? So I would say these are non-therapeutic experiments, not experiments like you might be asked to participate in. If, for example, you have cancer and your chemotherapies aren't working and there's a new experimental drug that um, isn't yet licensed, but you may be asked if you want to serve as a subject to test its um, efficacy. For those kinds of experiments, I would say the subject has, uh, there's possible benefit there for the subject. But for the experiments like these and also what's called phase one clinical trials, uh, the participants are not being asked. They're being asked to participate for the benefit of others, for the common good, for the greater good, for science. Um, And right now, um, we've commercialized this activity. People, to a large degree, are getting paid to serve in these studies. And so what I think is happening is that we're now getting... um, we're basically relying on the income insecure and people with, with um, at the lower end of the socioeconomic strata to serve as human subjects. So I think this is problematic also. And I think we need greater transparency on who's getting recruited and uh, who's being asked um, to take risks for the rest of us. Well, Sydney, I, we have come to the traditional final question. I know that this book was many, many years in the making. Um, what are you working on next? So there's some, if you will, odds and ends from the book that have kind of fascinated me. One is the issue of paying for, for human subjects and the stance of the bioethics uh, community on this. Um, but my major project, I'm hoping is going to be a, uh, if you will, graphic novel. One of the things I found in the archives were some wonderful cartoon drawings of a man who was a conscientious objector and an artist who did cartoon drawings of his experience as a human subject. And I have some of them in the book. um, And um, I managed to track down, he's no longer alive. His name uh, was uh, David Miller. He's no longer alive, but I I managed after months to track down his family. And um, they sent me, they sent me more and more of his cartoons. And I, I just, I want to sort of, if you will, do a version of the book that's about the, you know, that tells the story of the human experiments through the, through the lens of, of David Miller's cartoons and, and also raises questions about, um, about, the ethics of, of these kinds of experiments uh, through a graphic book. So wish me luck. <laughs> that is fabulous. Who is, are you doing the drawings? Well, that's the problem. I'm going to be looking for a collaborator. Let's put it this way. I have a vivid, uh, um, have a vivid visual imagination, but um, in my many years of being a, uh, medical historian, I have not developed my artistic skills. 
So while I can come up with a lot of ideas for uh, panels, for comic book panels, I am hoping to find a collaborator to help me implement this and, and my collaborator's own ideas. So, but, I, but I'm really looking forward to working on this. So. Well, that's great. Well, I hope you find one too. Thanks um, so much. Cindy, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.